0: We are continuing in our sermon series on 1 Peter, although we are actually going to be in the book of Lamentations this morning. I'll explain that in a moment. Open up with me to the Old Testament book of Lamentations. follows right after the rather lengthy book of Jeremiah. That might help you to find it. <clears throat> I don't know who that was on the way out when they said something about their grandma and grandpa. It's actually a good segue because I want to tell you a story about my grandma. Uh, when I was around 12 years old, my grandma was diagnosed with cancer. And, uh, you know, as a young kid, I it, I just didn't quite get it. I didn't understand it. In my mind, she was, and and still is, she is, in my mind, the epitome of a perfect grandma. Uh, every time you walked into her house, it smelled like brownies. It, it Because she always... She knew when her grandkids were coming over and she always had a pan of brownies waiting. In fact, I think my dad has um, four brothers and I I swear she made a different batch every time each of the families came over. Even if we were all coming over for the same thing, it was like a, a successive batch of brownies. I remember in her home she had Coke bottles the glass Coke. She had a rack always when the cousins were over, when it was Thanksgiving or Christmas and we all came over, she just had kind of bins or boxes. I don't know what they came in, but racks of Coke bottles. And the whole time we were there, all the cousins, I was the youngest of all the cousins at that time. We would just go and grab a Coke and the bottle opener. It was the only place that we drank Coke like that was at grandma's house. It just made it special. She would take us out for walks and show us the birds. She was a bird watcher. She was a speed walker, which was hilarious. I remember my grandmother teaching me how to speed walk. So you got to lift the diaphragm up. And she's like, think about your shoulders and the rest of you pulling yourself off the ground and then heel toe. It was hilarious. And she was really tall. So it was just hilarious. And I couldn't keep up with her. She would teach us things. She would get out a telescope to look at the stars. She had books that she would lay out to to show us things. She was always engaging us. Even while the the rest of the grown-ups were off doing things, she would come to the grandkids. and Maybe I remember this, maybe because she liked me more. I don't know. But being the youngest, I think maybe she felt bad for me sometimes. And so she would particularly engage me. And I loved her for it. And I remember seeing her in the hospital, just frail and weak and wasting away. I remember praying and crying out to God, God, heal my grandma. My faith at this time was weak. I had come to know Jesus as my Savior, but I wouldn't say I was really depending on him in my life at all. In fact, I think during this period of my life, I I really didn't want to be a Christian. I didn't want to be known as the church kid. But I remember praying. And I remember specifically praying, God, if you will heal my grandma, I, I, I will follow you. I'll get serious about this faith thing, this Christianity thing. If you just heal my grandma, please heal my grandma. I don't remember feeling much during her funeral. I don't think I cried, which if you know me is odd, because um, I tend to cry pretty easy. I remember just feeling like it was another kind of stuffy family event that I had to endure. Isn't that awful? But I'll never forget the trip home. We lived about five hours away from my grandparents' house. And I was laying down in the back seat of our, I think it was a minivan at that time. I'm pretty sure that's illegal now to lay down in the back seat of a minivan, but different times. My fam- family thought I was sleeping. It was late at night. And I started thinking about, my grandma's gone. God didn't answer my prayer, or at least not the way I wanted him to. And it really hit me. You know, it's funny as a kid, the things that stick with you, I, I just thought, no more brownies. No more walks. And, and it wasn't just like, I, I, you know, I knew I would eat more brownies in my life. It's that they wouldn't be my grandma. It, it wouldn't be her there with the pan. It wouldn't be the same walking into her house. That, that smell of brownies reminded me of her, and that wouldn't be there. And for a couple hours, in the back seat of my parents' minivan, I put my face in the pillow, and I just bawled. I don't think I've ever cried so hard in my life. It just It's like all the weightiness of losing my grandma as a child just hit me all at once. My family had no idea this was going on. Still to this day, I don't know if they know. When we arrived home, I, I looked at my pillow. It was just drenched with tears. But there were even spots of blood. I had been crying so hard. Just uncontrollably. I had no words to express how I was feeling in that moment I was so angry at God I felt so completely and totally cheated My whole life I'd grown up going to church I'd been told about this God that loved me That wanted to bless me with good things And nothing could have been further from the truth in that moment You know I'm older now I have perspective. I look back and I know, frankly, my grandma's death could have been much harder on her and the family. She was taken fairly early on in her struggle with cancer, and that was a blessing. I know now, as I knew then, my my grandmother is a devout Christian. She's in heaven. No more crying, no more pain. I'm able to see now the example that she gave me in my life and and how that's impacted me. I know these things now. There's a perspective that time and increased faith and growth gives us. But in those moments, in that moment when the floor drops out of your life, those aren't very comforting. And so I want us to consider this morning what happens when the bottom drops out of our lives. i got to tell you, I'm terrified to preach this sermon. All week long I've been struggling to take such a weighty topic and do it justice without belittling what anybody is going through. That's, that's one of my biggest fears, is that something I say might belittle what you're going through. but we're going to be looking at the hard topic of suffering and lamenting in suffering. In 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 6. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago before Jared preached last week which was so encouraging just looking at the love of God for us, the love of Jesus. But Peter wrote in all this, he's writing to these Christians, in all this, he's kind of summing up the gospel there. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though for now, though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And we talk then, as we have throughout the series on First Peter, Peter is writing to Christians who are going through the early stages of persecution. The widespread persecution under the crazy Emperor Nero in the Roman Empire hasn't quite reached its pinnacle yet yet. But it's coming. They're beginning to feel it. And they're struggling. And he's writing to that struggle. That's that's what the book of First Peter is about. But this morning I, I want to step out of that book and look at what is one important aspect of dealing with suffering and struggles that we need to, I believe, especially as modern American Christians, we need to come to grips with and understand better and stop avoiding. And that is the biblical concept of lament. I don't think that we understand or appreciate what it means to lament. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. I hope to give an overview, and by that I don't mean a summary of all the contents of Lamentations. I want to give enough so you understand what's being discussed. But then to really look at what are we to learn and how are we to practice lament in our life. And so I want to start by looking at the setting, this time of mourning that is the setting of the book of Lamentations. Because if we don't understand the historical time period of what's going on, we'll never completely understand the book of lamentations. And we have to go back to God's relationship with his people, Israel. I've been studying that in Sunday school. You hear it all the time. God calls his people into a relationship through Abraham. He has this special covenant relationship with them. Yet for hundreds of years, the Israelites rebel against God, ignore him, worship other gods. Around 1000 BC, the kingdom of Israel split into two. They have a civil war and it's divided into the north and the south. The northern kingdoms referred to as Israel, the southern as Judah. About 300 years later in the year 722 BC, the northern kingdom is captured and taken into exile by the Assyrians. And, And their southern kingdom brothers and sisters slash enemies are watching this and wondering how long Are we going to be safe? 117 years later, in 605 B.C., a little known guy by the name of Nebuchadnezzar comes along. He's the king of kind of the new world superpower, the Babylonians. And he defeats, on the other side of Israel, this other superpower, Egypt, in the Battle of Carchemish. So here's little old Judah, Babylon on one side, fought against Egypt on the other side, and they're wondering, how long are we going to be able to stay here? When is the axe going to fall on our head? Jeremiah the prophet warns the leaders of Jerusalem, keep trusting God. Don't turn away from Him. Don't give in to trusting other things. Don't give in to trusting these foreign leaders and thinking they're going to help you out. But the leadership of Judah refuses And they end up making a treaty with Babylon. That same year in 605 BC, the king, Jehoiakim, takes a scroll that contains 23 years of the messages of Jeremiah the prophet. Written out, instructing the king and all of Israel what they should do, how they should follow God through this time. And Jehoiakim takes that scroll and he throws it in the fire. This is the leader of God's people. Eight years later, in 597 BC, Jehoiakim rebels against Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar attacks, and Jehoiakim is killed in battle or possibly murdered by his own son. It's a little unclear. Many people from Judah are taken into exile, but the city is left standing. For 10 years, there's a power struggle. And the leadership of Israel, or Judah rather, struggles. Should we give in and and welcome the Babylonians? Should we fight against them? And the leadership is swayed back and forth by various political leaders and changing political currents in Jerusalem. Jeremiah then tells Zedekiah, the king at that time, you should submit to the Babylonians. God has chosen to use the Babylonians as an instrument of discipline. You should submit to them. But again, the king rebels. And here we come to the context of Lamentations. Nebuchadnezzar mercilessly attacks Jerusalem. For 18 months, he lays siege to the city. For 18 months, they have no access to the farms outside the city to bring in food. For 18 months, they have no access to their main sources of water. There's a little bit of water in the city, but not enough for the entire population. For 18 months, people starve die, disease spreads like wildfire through the city of the people of God. In 587, the city wall is broken and the Babylonians rush through and invade Jerusalem. What was left of the army of Judah flees out one of the back gates trying to get King Zedekiah away. They're immediately captured. King Zedekiah is brought before Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar has the king's sons brought before Zedekiah and slaughters them and is right where he can see. And then he gouges out Zedekiah's eyes, so that's the last thing he will ever see. Those left in the city who had endured starvation and watching their family and friends die all around them are forced to march on a thousand-foot or a thousand-mile journey by foot into Babylon leaving only the poorest of the poor behind in the city. As if that wasn't enough, the army then enters Jerusalem and systematically destroys every building, every wall, enters the temple of the most holy God, violating it, pulling out all of its treasures, and then destroys the temple. Jerusalem and the temple of God are left as a smoldering ruin. Now guys, it's easy to read history as just a sequence of events. These are real people. These are people like us. Imagine, put yourself in their place. Imagine your home being torn down and burned. Imagine your children being ripped away from you. And it's going to get worse, as we'll see in a moment. Don't ever allow, especially biblical history, but don't ever allow history to become this distant or distant, just mere educational thing. The people of Judah lose completely their pride. They lose their homes. They lose family members, including women and children who are savagely killed and left in the street. The promise that God had given them to protect them appears to them to be completely lying and shambles. And a question lingers through it all. Does God even care? It's in that moment of agony, loss, doubt, shame, that the book of Lamentations is written. Can you identify? On some level, To some degree, can you identify with that at all? I think as Christians, we're embarrassed to express doubt. We're embarrassed or afraid to to ask questions or to say, I'm struggling in my relationship with God. I mean, we say, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm fine. Because, right, if I'm saved by Jesus Christ and I know God loves me, everything should be wonderful and perfect, isn't it? The Bible says otherwise at times. Everything is not always wonderful and perfect. Even the structure of the book of Lamentations, and this this really isn't obvious in the English translation, but in the Hebrew, it's the, each chapter, at least the first four chapters, are an acrostic. Remember as a kid, you'd get these little handouts and A, and you'd write A is for apple or something, B, B is for bumblebee. That's what this is, but it's nothing cute. The author wants to sit down and describe the grief that he and his people are going through. So he starts with the Hebrew letter A, and he writes a bit about grief with a letter that begins, or with a word that begins with A. And he does that for 22 verses, 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And then he starts over in verse 2. He comes back to it in uh, chapter 2. He comes back in chapter 3 and does the same thing, or chapter 4. Chapter 3, which is really the pinnacle and the height of this book, he uses three verses for each letter. There are 66 verses in that chapter. The point is this. It is a systematic dwelling upon, dealing with, and trying to express the depth of the grief that they are going through. In the middle of this, there is hope. But there's a lot more grief and suffering in the book of Lamentations. Lamentations describes their suffering in stark and difficult ways. The city of Jerusalem is described like a woman. A woman who has been caught in adultery. And in that culture, one of the things they would do with a woman caught in adultery is strip her naked and throw her in the street. And that's how Jerusalem is described. And the people are walking by, seeing the city of God, destitute and exposed. Her voice cuts through in the book of Lamentations. If you look at chapter 1, verse 19, She says, she calls out to her, her friends, called out to my allies, but they betrayed me. My priests and my elders perished in the city while they searched for food to keep themselves alive. She said, I, I reached out to my friends that I was depending on that said they loved me. And they're nowhere to be found. Listen as Lady Jerusalem describes the suffering of her people. Lamentations chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. It's just one of many passages And maybe you can identify with this. My eyes fail from weeping. I am in torment within. My heart is poured out on the ground because my people are destroyed, because children and infants faint in the streets of the city. They say to their mothers, where is the bread and wine? As they faint like the wounded in the streets of the city, as their lives ebb away in their mother's arms. Do you hear the anguish there? Man, if you're here today and you've gotten the picture that Christianity is just some, you know, happy, clappy, everything's wonderful uh, religion, that that is absolutely not true. Christianity is hard. Faith is hard. It is hard to hold on to trusting in God when you're going through something like this. Lamentations chapter 4, verse 4. Because of thirst... The infant's tongue sticks to the roof of its mouth. The children beg for bread, but no one gives it to them. Could you imagine watching your child die of hunger and you can do nothing about it? But I'll warn you, it's going to get worse. Lamentations chapter 5, verses 19 through 22 There's a statement of faith, but the book ends with a very difficult question. You, Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures from generation to generation. Why do you always forget us? Why do you forsake us so long? Restore us to yourself, Lord, that we may return. Renew our days of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure can you identify with that have you ever wondered god do you even care the bible has words for that and i love that about the word of god this whole book is someone dealing in agony and anguish with the depths of suffering crying out to the lord saying god why would you do this Their world has been ripped apart. Their family and friends have died horrible deaths. All of their leaders have failed them. And they feel even God has turned against them. And as we'll see in a moment, they're not wrong. What do we learn from lament? We need to start by understanding what it is. A lament is an expression of grief. It's what happens in that moment where there's a difference between what we believe to be true about God and what He has promised us, and what is actually happening in the world. And we're looking at this difference, this tension, and saying, this is wrong, this doesn't make sense, this shouldn't be this way. So that's where lament starts. Lament then is actually a complaint to God. It's crying out to him in a complaint. How can you do this? How can you allow this to happen? Anybody feeling a little uncomfortable right now? Is it okay to complain to God? Yes. It is. That's what the book of Lamentations is all about. In fact, the book of Psalms is filled with laments. Lament is the single uh, greatest genre of psalms throughout the entirety of the book of psalms. There are more psalms that are laments than all the others. A lament is a complaint to God, but it is more than just that. There is, properly throughout a lament, some aspect of holding on to who God is, expressing that, seeking to claim or to try to hold on to hope in who God is. Still struggling, but remembering and reciting the hope that we have through God's promises. The very fact that the lament is taken to God shows a trust in God. See, we may want to complain about God. I don't believe in God because he's doing this to me. That's very different than going to God and saying, God, I'm struggling to believe in you because of what's happening in my life. The very fact of taking the lament to God is the beginning of faith. I'm seeking to trust in him. What do we learn from a lament? Number one, I think we learn that we need to embrace lament. I think too often we respond to grief by simply ignoring it. Oh, it's okay. Other things are good. It's really not that big a deal. It's no problem. The author of Lamentations, who I believe is Jeremiah, is is systematically, literally through the alphabet A to Z, dwelling on how awful his situation is. We can't just ignore it. I think we also respond to grief by getting stuck in it. We just stay there. Lamentations won't allow that either. We have to be pulled along to holding on to the promises of God. I think we look beyond it. Oh, it'll, it'll pass. Others have it much worse than me. That may be true. And it is ultimately true. It will pass. But in the moment, it stinks. It's hard. I think we also look for a silver lining. And that's not bad. God is blessing us in those moments of difficulty. But I think we're too quick to move on from the difficulty. You know, if you go into a, a Christian bookstore, you might see a painting on the wall. Beautiful scene. Maybe a cabin with flowers around it, and a stream, and the sun's rising. I've seen others that are like a little coffee mug, a little bit of steam coming on it, a nice warm, cozy chair and a little blanket. And there's a, a verse, a theme verse underneath it. And often that theme verse is Lamentations 3:22 to 23. His compassions never fail, they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We sing that song, don't we? Powerful song. Those pictures have no business being behind that verse. A better picture would be a couple in rags holding a starving child in the corner of a burned-out apartment building blasted open by war, wondering where their next food is going to come from. A better picture might be a Christian taken captive for their faith, held in a work camp somewhere, Wondering if he's going to survive another day. A better picture might be a mother on her knees, screaming and crying in agony because her child has died. That's the context of those verses. When you're wondering if you can make it another second to say, He has hope and grace that might seem just enough for the moment, but it is enough. We need to learn to embrace lament. I remember going to Washington, D.C. and touring the monuments. Going to the Vietnam Memorial. It's such a somber experience. At least it was when I've been there. I've heard of people have a different experience, depending on who's there at that time. Why? Why did we make this giant wall with a list of all these people who died? I mean, what a downer, right? Yeah, it is. Because our culture, our country said, it is right to remember. It is right to remember the pain and the grief. A lament is like a memorial of grief. It is setting up something in our life saying, this hurt, and I never want to forget it. Lament does not glamorize the event. It doesn't allow us to get stuck there and wallow in it, but it calls us to remember and to learn. C.S. Lewis famously wrote, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. You see, the people of Israel had ignored everything else God had said. And it's very clear in Lamentations they are going through what they are going through because they refused to listen to God. Another author wrote, I shall look at the world through tears. Perhaps I shall see things that dry-eyed I could not see. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 4 says, The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. How do we deal with this when we live in a culture that says you should get what you want right now without waiting and nobody has the right to tell you otherwise? We run from pleasure To pleasure, and we fight against anything that threatens to take that away from us. And then we come to a book like Lamentations, and we go, uh uh, I don't know what to do with that. I don't want to deal with it. We need to learn to embrace lament. Another thing we learn from a lament is the horror of sin. Coming up on Halloween, silly, isn't it? I I mean, I saw this commercial, you get these projectors that project onto your windows from the inside these scenes, so people on the outside see, you know, zombies trying to get out. One of them was like somebody being murdered. And I just thought, really? We're going to walk down the street and see silhouettes on a window of a person murdering another, and we're going to go, (laughs) ha ha ha. That's entertaining. It's not entertaining, that's sin. I mean, any other time of the year, you should be calling the cops. Today, you're going to knock on their, their door and ask for candy. What's wrong with us? Everything in the book of Lamentations, all the horror, all the hardship, all of it has its root in sin. Every hurt, every grief, every sorrow, and every agony in this world has its root in sin. Let me explain. Sometimes, and we'll look in the book of Lamentations, it's our own fault. They were suffering because of what they did. Sometimes, let's admit it, in our own lives, we look at hardships that we're going through, difficulties that we're experiencing, and if we can trace it back, we can go, Oh, yeah, I did that. That was me, if we're honest. Sometimes you trace it back and you go, that wasn't me. I I, I don't know what I did wrong. But it's the sin of someone else expressed against you. You are a victim to it. still sin. Sometimes, like in my grandmother's case, dying of cancer, it's because there's sin in the world. Humanity has fallen. Sin has entered in the world. It unravels the created order of God's perfect creation. And what should our response be to sin, whether it's ours, someone else's, or in the world in general? It should be absolute anger and horror and lament. Not, oh well, it doesn't matter. And lamentations. It's clear that the people are experiencing the consequences of their own sin. Look at Lamentations 1.14. Again, this is the woman, Jerusalem, speaking here. My sins have been bound into a yoke. By his hands they were woven together. They have been hung on my neck. And the Lord has sapped my strength. He has given me into the hands of those I cannot withstand. Throughout the book of Lamentations, it is very clear that the people of Judah are suffering for their own sins. They had been warned. They chose this route. God had tried to steer them away from this route through his prophets over and over and over and over again. And they would not listen. Lamentations 118 says, The Lord is righteous, yet I rebelled against his command. The city knows. The people know. We did this. We caused this. Lamentations teaches us to take a hard look at sin. To call it what it is. It is sin and it is wrong. To understand that sin and the effects of sin are damaging and awful and they fall short of God's perfect plan. but I think sometimes as modern Christians, we stop there and we just get angry at sin. Lament takes it a step further and says, be sorrowful. Even if it's not your sin, express sorrow over sin. Another thing we learn from Lamentations, God is absolutely sovereign. What do we mean by sovereign? God's sovereignty is his absolute power, complete knowledge, and total wisdom over all things, all people, and all events. To say that God is sovereign is to say that nothing in all of history or all of creation happens. It is outside of his ability to control it and his will and his perfect plan. For a book that is so full of suffering, it is amazing that it is saturated with the sovereignty of God. Chapter 1, verse 12, the woman Jerusalem states, is any suffering like my suffering that was inflicted on me? And look at what she says. Remember, foreign armies are coming in, but look at what she says, that the Lord brought on me in the day of his fierce anger. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 37 to 38 Who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? That's sovereignty. Lamentations teaches us what I think our lives confirm over and over again. God's sovereignty is wonderfully comforting, brings great hope, but it is also incredibly hard. It is hard to accept. It is very hard to experience because we don't like being out of control. We have to accept that God allows and even causes things that we do not like, that we do not agree with, and that we struggle to accept. We want to be able to tell God how to do his job. That God, if you had done it this way, it would have been better. That I know better what is good, what is right, and what is evil, and what is wrong. There's a great story in Scripture about humanity wanting to know the knowledge of good and evil, wanting to be like God, wanting to grasp that for themselves when God had clearly said, don't. It's right at the very beginning, Adam and Eve. Lamentations teaches us to hold on to the sovereignty of God, even in and especially in those moments when your world is falling apart. Lamentations also teaches us there is hope. Look at chapter 3, verses 16 through 26. This is the, the pinnacle of this book. It is the focal point. And there is great hope, but don't miss the context. That's why I want to start in verse 16. The author says he has broken my teeth with gravel. He has trampled me in the dust. He's talking about God here. I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. So I say my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped from the Lord. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I will remember them and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. In the middle of suffering, the author goes back to promises that at that moment he's not seeing, To a character of God that at that moment he thinks is out of sync with what he's experiencing. You know, in many ways, ultimately lament looks to the cross. In those moments of suffering and grief when we say, God, it's not fair. God, you're wrong. God, I would do this different. Would you take the sin of the world? Would I take the sin of the world? Put it on my only begotten son? as God the Father who has the power over life and death and all worldly political leaders and could have stopped the crucifixion at any moment, as Jesus Christ with all sovereign authority as being God himself could have stopped it at any moment. Can we as Christians, when we go through the difficulty of loss and the horror of experiencing the effects of sin, Do we have the faith to say, but this I call to mind? My God sent his son to die on the cross for me. I don't get this. I I don't understand what's going on here. I would love to sit down with God and, and, and say, man, I've got some ideas on how you should have done this one. But I can trust in a God that would send his son to die in my place, to raise from the dead, promising eternal life to all who believe. That's the ultimate hope. Just as this passage of hope and lamentations is the culmination or the pinnacle, so the cross is the culmination or the pinnacle of our faith in God. So how do we learn to lament? I'm going to encourage you to do something strange. Spend time lamenting. Get a journal. Take a moment to look at stuff in your life that you wish was different. And again, maybe it's your own fault. Maybe it's other people's fault. Maybe it's just living in a messed up world. But write out, Father, why? I'm struggling with this. You might think, man, that goes against every self-help thing and every Christian feel-good thing. Absolutely. Absolutely because I think we're missing this. We need to learn to lament. Oh, we're all happy to jump on Facebook and and provide, you know, this is what world leaders should do, but do we stop and take the moment to bring it to God and say, God, I lament over what's going on? It is wrong. It is sin. Do we express our own involvement in some of those things? Do we ever step back and say, wait a minute, I don't like what so-and-so's doing or what's happening here, but, you know, I kind of do the same thing in my own life. Do we lament over that? Do we cry out to God over our own personal tragedies? Or do we just put on the Christian faith face? I'm good. Everything's fine. Do we cry out to God about the injustice and the sorrow and the loss that is in this world? And do we lament with each other? Do we have the faith to come alongside someone who is suffering and hurting? To enter into that suffering and to lament with them? Or do we just say, I've got enough stuff in my own life? I don't have time to deal with this. It's okay to grieve. It's good to cry out to God. It's important not to get stuck there, but to use lament to rehearse in our own minds, God is good. I know that beyond any shadow of any doubt that's going on now because he sent his son to die for me. Another way to practice lament is whatever is going on in your life right now, draw close to Christ. I think one of the reasons we struggle and lament is that we don't have that undergirding strong faith and hope no matter what so that when we get into the time of difficulty, when the floor drops out of our life, we don't have that ability to say, but this one thing I hope in. Rather, what we have is a conditional faith. Well, God, as long as you bless me, I'm all yours. But man, you're not blessing me right now. This is not part of the deal. I don't know that I'm really believing in you anymore draw close to Christ learn about his love his mercy, the hope given to us on the cross learn even and maybe especially about the importance of the sovereignty of God look to the cross in all things, may the cross be the lens through which we interpret everything in our lives everything in our world, everything that we're going through And then trust. Trust in the God who has the answers. Again, too often we're so conditional. I will trust in God when he gives me the answers. No. You may not get answers. You may not like the answers you do get. But see, he's God and we're not. He knows better what the answers are. He knows what he's doing from the beginning to the end. He is bigger than our lamenting and our suffering. We must trust in him. Let God be who he says he is. Quit trying to believe in a God who you try to make be who you think he is. You may not agree with what God is doing. That's okay because he didn't put it to our vote. He knows so much more than we do. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. Revelations is another tough book in Scripture filled with loss, hardship, death. But unlike Lamentations, it doesn't end there. There is an ending in Revelation. There is an ending of God's plan in all of Scripture. There is a hope that is being looked forward to. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, come down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. You see, in the midst of lamenting, we're crying out for justice. God, this isn't right. We're asking you to make it right. God's going to make it right. What it takes to make things right is hard. There is judgment. There's also hope. And between now and then, as we live in a time of lamenting, there's a gospel of Jesus Christ that promises eternal life to all who believe. And I wonder, when everything falls apart, will we have the faith to say, But this I call to mind. Let's pray. Father, this is an uncomfortable sermon about an uncomfortable book, about an uncomfortable topic. And while I want to bring hope, I also don't want to just gloss over the difficulty. Because I've found in my own life, when I'm suffering and struggling, the easy answers that we try to convince ourselves of just don't cut it. And I have to wonder how many are here struggling with their own faith, or maybe even those who have been dragged here by someone else who won't accept the gospel or have walked away from their faith because they found that the easy answers we're not good enough. God, may we be people that don't just settle for easy answers. May we, as the author of Lamentations, be willing to cry out to you, how long will this suffering continue? I feel like you've forgotten us at times. I see the injustice in the world and I wonder what you're doing about it. But even in that lament, may we recall who you are. May we recall the hope that we have through Jesus Christ. May we be able to say, you are good, you are God, and we are not. And we will trust you no matter what. In your name we pray.